and welcome to the fourth episode of the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast, where every week we bring you insights on leadership during a crisis, distilled from weekly interviews with a group of 10 senior decision makers in city government and large global organizations as they navigate their organization's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Seth Schultz, the Executive Director of The Resilient Shift. Joining me is Peter Willis to reflect on insights distilled from interviews he conducted between the 4th and 8th of May. Peter, it's great to be back together with you again this week. Very good to be with you too, Seth. Well, I'm sure there's a lot going on, so let's let's just jump right into it. Um, what are some of the things you've been hearing from participants this last week? Well, I'd like us to talk about three things, three broad um, types of stories I've been hearing in my conversations uh, with our participants. The one is around personal resilience and, and, and the very personal aspect of leading in these times. Then there's a the sense of um, coming to a, a cliff edge or a, a reality check. So some, some of the sort of gulp realizations that some of them have been hitting. And, and then the starting to look forward and realize that this is a massive opportunity for reinvention of various kinds. So those are the three areas. Where would you like to jump in? Interesting. Um, that's kind of a, a meaty, line, meaty lineup there. Maybe, maybe perhaps. Picking up on on where we left off last week, some of the things we were talking about that had been emerging um, the week before was uh, the topic of reopening, um, how you might do that, what that might look like. So this idea of a reality check, cliff edge kind of concept, I'm curious, are you, in what way are you hearing that? A reality check in terms of reopening, uh, in terms of not reopening? Um, how is that manifesting itself in, in the conversations you've been having? Yeah, um, it it has been less about reopening, although that has been uh, in the discussion. And and by and large, there's a realization that reopening is way more complex than was initially thought. I think some of my participants were were always kind of cautious about it, but now the rest of their teams and organizations have caught up and realized, gee, how this is going to be. Uh, and some of them are even saying, please, please go slower. And these were the ones who were saying go faster early on. So so that's a reality check in a way. But no, it's also been uh, at the level of, I'm, I'm thinking of one particular conversation with a chief resilience officer in one of the cities, and this is in the global south, and the, the infection rate and the death toll is starting to rise and accelerate. And he had, when I had my conversation with him last week, he'd just come off a call about um, the logistics of fatalities management. I had to ask him to repeat it. And I said, sorry, what is that? And he said, things like mass graves. And, and he said, the, the bizarre thing was that I was sitting having this conversation while looking out of my living room window and, and watching the birds and hearing them tweeting in the sunshine. So there was, there was that aspect to it of the slight unreality of having this conversation about mass graves and preparing for a possible spike when the normal systems couldn't cope. But then he also said something so interesting about how when you're part of the team that's responsible for making plans so that things don't go terribly wrongly, uh, you're always necessarily several steps ahead of the general public, even several steps ahead of some of your team members. And so he fully expects that in a few weeks' time, it's going to be a public question 
are our mortuaries going to cope? You know, are, are we going to need, dare we say it, mass graves and so on? And he and those people that were on that conversation will have been part of thinking about it way ahead. And they will have gone through the emotional trauma of having to take decisions about mass graves. By the time they get to when the public wakes up, they have to go back and retrieve that sense of empathy with what the public is now getting rightfully traumatized by, which is the prospect of that much death. And um, uh, he wasn't in any way complaining. He was just noting that this is something that goes with the territory of being responsible for these kinds of gritty services when you're talking about life and death. I found that quite poignant. Yeah, quite. And I, I can imagine how surreal too. kind of the point about the sunshine and and, and the, the personal environment you're in versus where your head and, and mind needs to be. But also the complication uh, of another thing that we had talked about the previous week, which is trust and openness. You know, at what point do you, do you need to share the preparations and things that are happening versus, you know, what's good for the, for the public knowledge and or not? And when do you share that? And it's interesting listening to you talk, Peter. I, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a good friend of mine who lives in, in Queens. and one of the, in, in the early days of the kind of epicenter of New York City with the virus, a community in, in Queens and Elmhurst was particularly hard hit and, and a hospital there ended up being kind of ground zero, uh, so to speak. And she was just down the block and was telling me about seeing the tractor trailer, which was the temporary morgue. They were, you know, it was a frozen uh, truck with a freezing um, coolant and they were kind of stacking the bodies in this, in this trailer and how surreal it was that it was happening on her block. But she, at that point, hadn't quite been hearing about that in the news. Yeah, really profound and, and quite surreal. Yeah, the, this, you're, you're raising an interesting thought here, Seth, which is around how the public is included, but largely excluded from whole areas of what may concern them. And, and, and often for very good reason, and, and let's face it, most of the time, the public don't want to know. They just do the stuff, deliver the services I need, and here's my my money once a month, and you know, leave me alone. That's the response to government. But my sense is that this question of how much you tell the public when is actually incredibly important during a crisis. On one of the other conversations with a chief resilience officer this time in India, he was talking about the the policy or the 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 habit that the state government had developed, which was to only tell people right at the last minute what they were going to do about shifting the lockdown arrangements and so on, because they were afraid that if they gave too much advance notice, people would start objecting. There'd be, and you know, they, they were afraid that they wouldn't be able to carry out what they wanted to do. But the dark side of that, of course, is that people feel distrusted. And in the longer term, he was concerned that this might actually lead to a breakdown in trust in government when actually they were doing it because they really wanted to be sure to get the job done. It's a very difficult. Um, and then I think on the mass graves side, this is part of our general sort of denial of death. We keep death behind a wall uh, in all kinds of ways in our society. And this epidemic, we see a lot of numbers on television and in the media, but we are we spare ourselves and we are spared the 
real confrontation with death unless it happens in a in close proximity to us. And that, I think, has given an air of unreality to this pandemic. We know people are dying in large numbers, but it's you don't see it and nobody really talks about it. No, I, I would agree. It's, it's a fascinating how inconsistent, I think, the imagery and the topics of what is happening with relation to the virus um, is emerging in, in, in the public eye. Uh, I read a really interesting article, uh, Peter, a couple of weeks ago, and it was talking about imagery and the power of imagery and how important a single photograph can be in, in terms of motivating and inspiring a nation. But the imagery that is being used now is, is decidedly towards one of, of hope, which is as it should be in, in hearing about the triumph of the human spirit and how we're pulling together and showing frontline workers, whether they be nurses or grocery store clerks, but we, we aren't seeing some of the, the down and dirty stuff that is happening um, and that is equally as, if not more so, important to understand. And I, it, part of me wonders whether this is some of the stuff that's fueling some of the, the protests and riots we're beginning to see. It's kind of going back to your point about governments um, you know, waiting for the last minute to, to say things and why that you've got a lot of people around the world saying, we don't want to be in lockdown anymore, or it's not really affecting us. It's happening someplace else. And, or we can't, since they can't see what it looks like, maybe wanting to reopen and get back to life more quickly than they should. So I, I think there's a fascinating underlying tension and, and problem here with what we are seeing and, and when we're seeing it, but to kind of, to build off of that very complicated kind of discussion point, Peter, I'm really curious how this is manifesting itself in the private side. Because again, one of the things that I was hearing from you a week or two ago was how much companies are leaning into trying to be very direct with their staff and communicating to the point of painfulness and also personal on a personal nature about taking care of each other and protecting each other and being really clear and upfront about what the impacts to the company are and what layoffs or reductions in pay might have to be, which sounds like the exact opposite from a government standpoint communications perspective. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it in that in that um, juxtaposition, but you're you're right. The, actually, this this last week there wasn't so much conversation about sort of the corporate policy towards um, staff. That was sort of beginning to bed down and become routine. Mm. But I had one or two very interesting conversations about the personal, the, the 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 actual individual that I had on the on the line, talking about how they were sensing transformative pressure on themselves. Mm. One of whom had been through a a, a really serious uh, illness at the beginning of the year, a sort of surprise shock illness, which um, put her in. It hospital. was not. It wasn't COVID related. No, this was before the. Um, I think it was literally beginning of January or something. So she was just starting to come out of this as the pandemic broke, and because she was in such a vulnerable position and had been off work, and people were really taking care of her. Her, her responsibilities for her, which she felt very supported by. And as she started to come back in, she encountered this sort of somewhat traumatized workplace with people trying to sort of find their feet and so on. And she found herself altered by the experience of having had this very um, dangerous illness. And she talked about how she had come out wanting, finding herself wanting to be much, much more transparent and handing responsibility to people all around her who normally she would have felt more obligation to control, you know, the targets she was set and things like that. It was quite clear that she had 
arrived in this pandemic prepared in a way that most most people aren't. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have been through trauma and, and severe illness, but she was coming off it right in the uh, the weeks before. And she's really, in a strange way, enjoying the job of leading now from this position of extreme vulnerability. Fascinating. And then another person that I've been talking to, a very dynamic uh, woman, and she's grasped suddenly, this was our conversation last week, that she's grasped that actually we are in now in permanent change. I mean, until maybe we won't be at some point, but forget about that for, for the foreseeable future. Uh, and she calls it the now normal. And everybody's been talking about, well, you know, we're going to get to a new norm, normal, as though that was a, a solid state. Right. And actually, she's saying, no, the only reliable thing as we're going forward is the now. And uh, we need to get comfortable living in that like almost surfing. She used a yoga metaphor. She said, when I'm on my mat, I, I grind myself by remembering the only real thing right now is me and my mat. That's where the world is. And I just thought, yeah, that's not a bad response to the chronic uncertainty that any leader is having to work in right now. No, I quite like it. The, the now normal, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that, Peter. Um, it, it is because again, as we were talking about last week, the, the rate uh, and speed with which things are evolving, the level of uncertainty moving forward, and the rapidity with which actions and decisions need to be taken, it is kind of overwhelming. And, and but it is that is what is consistent. And this kind of phrase of the new normal or the now normal, rather, excuse me, yes. is uh, is I think yeah, really hits home at least to me. And 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 the metaphor too yeah. is, is quite apt in terms of meditation and and what you can do in the moment. And what needs to happen right now? But I want to take you to the to the the to the complete polar opposite of that very intimate conversation to this this reinvention in the future, the possibility for reinvention that this pandemic has brought. And the conversation I had with a a guy who's who works in a big multilateral development bank, and his work is to bring the green recovery and climate awareness into the stimulus packages that are now being discussed all over the world, particularly in the developing world. And it was a very, very touch. Well, quite a, I was quite moved by the conversation because he has got, um, after years and years of doing this work, he's got an extraordinary insight into just what a precious window this pandemic has offered to humanity through this specific thing that there is a massive amount of money suddenly being put on the table by all kinds of institutions um, for developing world governments to borrow and make use of in order to re-stimulate their economies. And the opportunity to do that in a way that strips away fossil fuel uh, subsidies, for example, which are currently not really necessary anyway, but they'll come back, and to shift to green energy, green industry, and so on. It's perfect in theory, but he was saying it is all down to the politics of the short term. And ultimately, the borrowing government can say, thank you, we're doing the borrowing, and we will decide what we want to spend on. And they are largely driven by politics. And it was um, quite hard to hear. He says, look, that you know, he's not giving up, and there's a window that will last for a few weeks during which these negotiations are going to get uh, to happen between these big banks and the borrowing governments. But I felt as though I was having a peek at a, 
a stage that's hidden from the, the vast majority of us, but some very, very critical decisions are being made there. And ultimately, they'll be made on the basis of vision and interest in competition. Yeah, kind of moving to the now normal, while that's incredibly important for, for dealing with things right now, it, it, it is in juxtaposition to what's happening in the, in the near future and how do we prepare for that. And, and that's where a lot of conversations that I've been having last week resonate with what you were just telling me in the interview that you had been doing. Because a lot of the conversations that I'm having is all around, you know, how are we going to jumpstart the economy again? And one of the ways that that's going to happen is very much through large infrastructure stimulus bills. The world has been clamoring for more infrastructure for the last 20 years. It really hasn't manifested itself. There's a burgeoning infrastructure gap around the world, as we know, and the existing infrastructure is, is crumbling. So this is a huge opportunity. But again, we didn't get it right as an example, at least here in the US, after the 2008, 2009 housing market financial crisis. Um, there was a huge stimulus program that was put through and it was all about jumpstarting the economy. And, you know, sadly, we ended up paving over existing roads, et cetera, just because we could roll them out and get people back to work. I.e., they, they weren't very smart and they, they, we lost a massive opportunity to mm-hmm. embed more resilient, environmentally sustainable projects, which we desperately need. And people in that, in that space refer the next 10 years as, a, as the decade of action. This is the, the decade with which climate emissions have to, to, to fall. There's a, a massive repositioning of, of infrastructures as we're moving into electrification, autonomous vehicles, artificial intelligence, etc. And, and this is the make or break decade. And going back to my emergency response work, I mean, the silver lining there is that when something like this happens, they are once in a generation opportunities to build back. And the idea is you, you don't build back what was there, you, you build back better and stronger. Kind of, you know, another term that's being kicked around right now, Peter, is a bounce forward. And how do you do that? Another kind of less, uh, you know, intense analogy is uh, the World Cup. Uh, when the World Cup or the Olympics comes to a particular town or city or region, there's billions and billions of, of infrastructure that get invested into it that would never be available. Same thing happens after a massive tsunami or a hurricane or an earthquake. You have this massive once in a generation influx of, of resources. And that's, that is the way that COVID is going to be handled. And how we start looking at those opportunities for reinvention are important, not just for the, for businesses, for countries, for communities, but also for all of us as a society is how, how we pick ourselves back up from this is, is going to have a ripple effect for the rest of the century. And how is that manifesting itself? Again, from what you're hearing in terms of these leaders, the front line, having to like ground themselves in the now normal and take care of this versus, you know, the conversations about preparatory mass graves, which is still, you know, immediately how we're dealing with this. But what does it look like three months from now in terms of what their business continuity is or organizational restructure? Is that even beginning to emerge yet in your conversations, Peter? Give me, give me another week. I think there, I've just started. I mean, we're having this conversation on a Tuesday and yeah. I had my Monday conversations on one or two already on Tuesday morning. And uh, already something is starting to shift in this direction of the middle ground, the middle future. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, I suspect it's going to take shape more firmly in the, in the coming week. So perhaps that's something for our next. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I guess a follow-up to that is, have you heard or seen any emerging anecdotes or insights of, of the kind of the now normal solutions that have actually pivoted from, you know, crisis to opportunity, not in the long term, but the immediate and how they're kind of reusing or repurposing infrastructure or processes or healthcare systems. Have you seen or heard of any of those types of examples? Yes, um, there's quite a fad developing, it seems, for cities to um, get to grips with the this horrendous public transport dilemma that people don't want to get, people want to unlock and get back to their work and their socializing and they want to come into the cities, but they, they're terrified of using crowded public transport. So the default for those who have them is cars, but a lot of people don't have cars or don't want to use them coming into the city. And so uh, there are several cities, one of them I was talking to, building bike lanes, uh, huge, huge numbers of kilometers of bike lanes and actually closing off streets. A very interesting idea that you close off uh, in every little sub-district of the city, you close off 500 meters of uh, a road and you allow restaurants to spill out into the road. You allow people to socially distance as they walk on that road rather than crowding the pavements. And <laughs> the guy I was talking to said, um, we're specifically looking for roads where there are electric charging points for vehicles because you can also use those to power sound systems so you can have kind of impromptu concerts in those streets and you can start to rebuild the cultural life of your city. And I thought, that's neat. That's, there's repurposing micro-infrastructure and trying to solve the um, public mobility conundrum, which I think all cities are going to face. As they yeah, that is that is a great great example, and it is interesting on how consistent that is across whatever type of city, wherever you are in the world. This this issue of of transportation and now clean air, mm-hmm. uh, you know, quiet streets, but also the counterintuitive process associated with getting back to normal. To your point, and and actually looking at the the benefits of, of public transportation now as a, a specific vector for the virus and. A lack of interest in going back to that, so it's it's really quite fascinating. But also listening to you, Peter, I, I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit of a personal question: What's your yoga mat uh, look like right now? And and it must be fascinating for you on a weekly basis to hear all the stuff that's happening all over the world. What is that leaving you with? Are, are you feeling kind of overwhelmed by this? Are you feeling optimistic? Um, what what where's your headspace at? What, what what is your yoga mat moment? What a lovely question. Well, the, uh, my yoga mat is the people that I engage with. I mean, dare I say it, even this conversation you and I are having every week is I'm a very people-oriented person. I suppose you'd say I'm an extrovert. So I am most encouraged and filled with hope when I engage with people, even if those people may be feeling temporarily depressed about the future or something, but just engaging with people. So for me to have these 10, soon to be 12 conversations a week regularly is an unexpected privilege of the highest order for me. I feel really gifted. That and and we happen to live looking out over False Bay outside Cape Town. So watching pods, large pods of dolphins going past. That was yesterday's excitement. Yeah, that definitely takes me out of things. Well, 
I'm grateful for what you're doing, Peter. And, uh, and I look forward to these weekly chats to hear and to understand what you've been hearing and, and learning from across this uh, global network of champions who are you know, facing different challenges on a, on a daily and a weekly basis and a, and a little slice that we can kind of lay bare and learn from. So big thanks uh, from the team to you for this. Wow. And uh, again, I'll look forward to our, our conversation again next week. Thanks so much, Peter. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Seth. Thank you for joining Peter and me as we reflected on some of the insights from week four of interviews. If you found us through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, please check out the link to our project page in the notes below. You can find more information about the project and key insights captured as a blog post. While you're there, We'd also love to hear your thoughts on our podcast or your own insights on leadership during this crisis. This is Seth Schultz, and on behalf of the project team and the Resilience Shift, thank you for listening. See you next week.